This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. I'm Uma Pagan Ampake Pagan, and this is Bookmark. On the show today, Nicholas Reynolds joins me to talk about Ernest Hemingway. He's got a brand new book out called Writer, Sailor, Soldier, Spy Ernest Hemingway's Secret Adventures, in which he uncovers a rather startling revelation that Hemingway was working for both sides. He was recruited before the Second World War by both the Americans as well as the Soviets. Okay, um, my name is Nicholas Reynolds. I'm a retired federal employee. I uh, worked for the Marine Corps and the CIA. My last job was as historian for the CIA Museum. Before, before we begin, uh, before we start talking about the book, let's talk a little bit about your time in the CIA and tell me what that was like. I mean, both uh, working for the CIA as well as um, curating the museum. Okay, I, I wasn't actually the curator of the museum. I was the historian of the museum. Right. My function was basically content. I was in charge of doing historical research, writing, writing plans for uh, helping, contributing to plans for exhibits, uh, contributing to museum publications about usually the history of the CIA. But uh, in the case of what, what led to this book here, was the an exhibit on the history of the OSS, which was the CIA's predecessor organization in World War II. So tell me a little bit about the OSS and its role during the war. The OSS was the first central intelligence agency, first American central intelligence agency, no caps. And the OSS's, the, the plan for the OSS was to bring in a variety of activities and streams of information into one place so that they could get the whole picture. The, the history of American intelligence before World War II is a little bit there, a little bit here, a little bit there. So the Intelligence Bureau was always a subset of a large organization. OSS was the first more or less independent intelligence agency in American history. You start the book by talking about a particular incident involving Hemingway and Colonel David uh-huh. Bruce. Now, a lot of people may not be aware of that incident, so talk to me about liberating this hotel in Paris. Okay, that's a, so uh, this was one of the high points in Hemingway's somewhat varied career as a spy. This was uh, after D-Day. It was August 1944. And the Allied armies are moving towards Paris to eject the Germans. Hemingway finds himself kind of in a no-man's land between the advancing and retreating armies. And like a good general or military figure, he realizes there's an opportunity here. There's, there's danger, but there's also opportunity. And basically, he puts together, initially, more or less on his own, he puts together uh, kind of a little intelligence headquarters and rounds up people to work at this headquarters and then makes common cause with David K.E. Bruce, who's the head of OSS for Europe. And Hemingway was actually doing what Bruce's job was. So so Bruce comes along and he goes, hey, you know, this is exactly what I was going to do, so <laughs> why don't we do it together? And they basically run tactical intelligence operations on the outskirts of Paris and and then they go into Paris together, say, I think August 24th, 25th, thereabouts, 
and uh, one of their first acts, not the first, but one of their first acts is to go with their entourage by this point about 50 men, you know, motley, I won't say a motley crew, I'll say a variety of uniforms and, and equipment. So French partisans, American officers, army officers, uh, there was a Navy officer, correspondents, a couple of pretty well-known correspondents, one of them, SLA Marshall, went on to become a prominent military historian. Anyway, they go into the bar in the Ritz there and kind of declare it free of Germans and order 50 martinis. And David Bruce, who's basically an American aristocrat, says they weren't very good. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I would think any, any martini on a, on a basically what's still a battlefield ought to be judged as pretty good. So Right, and it was this story that kind of led you down this rabbit hole of discovery. Exactly. So this was, the, this was the initial story, something I was dimly aware of, actually from my childhood when the book Is Paris Burning came out. And so when I was researching the history of the OSS for the exhibit, I said, well, you know, who's in OSS? And I, I remember this, and I start, I start looking for Hemingway threads, and I find that in the National Archives here, just outside Washington, D.C., you can access the personnel records of OSS officers and, and associates. And there's three hits for three Hemingways who, who found their way separately to relationships with the OSS. Hemingway, his brother, and his son. Uh, his son became a, uh, a full-fledged member of OSS, so he's, he's on the payroll. Hemingway had this unofficial relationship that I just described, uh, and his brother applied to OSS early on in the war, and Ernest, who was about 15 years older and, and kind of in loco parentis, told his brother, you, you, you're not going to war. You have two kids. You're going to stay in Washington. And he makes some phone calls and basically cancels his brother's application. It's okay for Ernest, who's, you know, in his 40s and, and has three kids. It's fine for Ernest to go to war <laughs> and risk his life. But it's not okay for the, the younger brother to do the same thing. So a little bit of a double standard there. And, of course, Ernest Hemingway wasn't the only celebrity slash writer, author, actor type person to be in the OSS. I mean, Julia Child, when you think back now, it feels kind of obvious that she would have been in the OSS. But yeah, I mean, it seemed like they would recruit from the aristocratic, the celebrity class, if you will. Exactly. I mean, the, 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 I mean it's, the, it's the East Coast elite from, from basically Richmond to Boston. Yeah. That is the initial recruiting bed, if you will, for, for OSS. After that, to be fair, OSS does, does reach out to people with skills who might not have the kind of East Coast establishment credentials, but speak a foreign language. There's talk of counterfeiters who were sprung from jail. I haven't seen the documentation, but I've read the claims. You know, you get a variety of people. You get German, uh, German emigres, get labor figures. So it's, a, it's, a, it's quite a, uh, you know, did, did OSS win the war for the Allies? Hardly. The great intelligence story of World War II, as I'm sure you, you know, is, is signals intelligence, especially 
on the British side, but to a a fair extent on the American side as well. So um, OSS was an interesting, worthy experiment. But you, you, you do see this amazing variety of people. There's only OSS peaks at, at 13,000, you know, at one point in the war. But there's just this amazing array of talent in OSS. And, and there's, there's a lot of people like Hemingway and Bruce who see opportunities and seize them and make contributions. And Hemingway made a genuine contribution. Hemingway and Bruce made a genuine contribution to the tactical intelligence picture outside Paris. You write about how Hemingway's character made him amenable to spy work. And part of it was probably this notion of, well, this romantic notion of what a writer is. But I was wondering how much in your research, how much of it had to do with Hemingway's kind of cockiness and arrogance? That's where I would go with, that's exactly where I would go with an answer to the question of what, what drives Hemingway and, and all these adventures. Uh, and, and that's that, you know, he's, he, he is a genius as a writer. He's, he's got a, a God-given talent, which he works very hard to develop. And I think even till today, he probably ranks as one of the greatest American writers of any generation. I, I yeah, no, no argument, um, no <laughs> argument there. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting in my living room and I, I look across to the bookshelf and, you know, what have I got? Three or four uh, shelves of books um, by or, or about Hemingway. So his awareness of his, his special place in, in literature makes him, it, it empowers him, I think, and, and makes him feel he can do many things that other mortals can't. And so you see as early as the Spanish Civil War, you see him basically trying to develop his own foreign policy. He's, you know, he's dealing with the Soviets in Spain. He's also, he's also dealing with the, you know, at one point it looks like the, the war is going to be lost in 38. Uh, and, and he goes to the American embassy and he says, look, you know, if the, the fronts collapse, we need to save the U.S. citizens. And the, the, the American embassy says, okay, we'll do that. You know, and Hemingway says, if you're short of money, I'll put up my own funds. <laughs> so it's a mix of arrogance, cockiness, you know, Hemingway's an, an interesting character because it, it, he, he's got a there's a big heart there that that's beating a lot of the time. There's there's also pettiness and and vindictiveness and and whatnot that we see, but there's also a, a heart that beats for you know for humanity, if you will. So in the course of your research, you discover something incredible, and that being Hemingway was actually a Russian spy as well. Now. Describe to me the moment you discovered this and tell me how you felt, because just reading the synopsis for your book kind of took me by surprise and had my jaw on the floor. That's pretty much, the, uh, I think I use the, the term elbow in the gut <laughs> yes. to describe that. And, and, and so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a, I don't know, traditional, I served in the military, I served in the agency. Right. Um, my father, my father served in the foreign service. I don't know. We, we, we sort of, we sort of have a 1940s belief in, in, in America and American institutions. And so for me to see that Hemingway, 
even for a day or or an hour was signed up with the Soviets was initially very hard to accept and 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 the the driver for the book so if 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 the book has a question it's why do you do it you know how does this fit in with the rest of his life so after i see that i i i start looking around for someone to explain to me what this means does it does this cancel out big chunks of hemingway's hemingway had always said you know i don't care about politics i'm 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 apolitical i i just i tell it like i see it i write the books politics goes on at at arm's length from me and so i needed i i looked for somebody to explain it to me i didn't find that person (laughs) so i mean you say in the book that everyone was dead most of his his contemporaries, there's, there's a couple still around, one of them whom wouldn't speak to me, and the other of whom was, was his secretary, who, who uh, is very accessible. But this wasn't something that, that you know, he, he was a very secretive guy. And, and so along with the arrogance and the, the kind of entitlement comes this, this I guess if, you, if, you, if you're the one who owns the secret, then you have an advantage over the other guy. And that's that's kind of the... I think that's the pull of of secrets for a lot of people, and especially for Ernest. The the, the Dutch film director Joris Ivans says, you know, he understood that Ernest needed to feel like he was having getting special access to the decision makers in Spain. And since uh, Joris was a was a communist, a mem- uh, agent of the Comintern, basically. For him, those those influential people are Soviets and and Soviet spies. So he kind of kind of nudges Ernest. He opens up opportunities for Ernest that Ernest probably would have liked to would have found on his own. But but he makes it easy for him, and he and I think he's got it right. He says you, you know Ernest er, Ernest wanted wanted to have advantages that other uh, reporters in Spain didn't have in terms of access and, and privileges that got you into certain places. Was there any notion that he was somehow playing one off the other, that he was some kind of a double agent? Great question. Um, I don't Because think so. I see far too many movies, and that's what goes through my head. I, I, think that's a, I, think, I think that's a legitimate question. I think, you know, there was, there's a remarkable number of American spies in the, in the, starting from about 1930 and going to 1945, and and among them are senior officials in the government. There's one in the in Treasury. There's a couple or three in the in the State Department. There's one or two in the White House. And these guys think that they can kind of they're not exactly playing one side off against the other, but they think they're smarter than everybody else, and they can they can you know put their oar in at the moment at which it will favor the policy that they think will advance the interests of mankind. This is something the U.S. government would take exception to. I mean, if you, if you work for Treasury or State or, or, or FDR, right. you're supposed to put their interests first. But these guys think that they see a, a, a bigger picture and, and that they can be trusted to, to I don't know, manipulate is not quite the right word, but to to influence events. So is he playing one side off against another? Not exactly. Does he think he's playing a more sophisticated game than the other folks? Um, yeah, I, I, I would. that's the way I would put it. So just how much 
just how much spying did he do? I mean, he was so prolific as an author. How did he find the time to do both? So how much spying did Ernest do? So, so conventional spying or conventional espionage would be, I work for so the guy who worked at the Treasury. He sees a document. He copies it. He takes it to his Soviet handler. That would right. be conventional spying as, uh, or, or conventional espionage. Let me, let me be precise. Did Ernest do anything quite like that? I don't think so. I have no evidence. In fact, we have evidence to the contrary. In the Soviet file, they keep going, when's he going to produce something for us? Ernest thinks more in terms of influencing events. So intriguing, advising, what we discussed about Paris is a good example of what, what Ernest understands as intelligence work. And, and he's, you know, he's pulling threads together. He's, he's creating a product. He's telling the decision maker, who in this case was a French general, hey, here's, your, you know, here's the way to Paris. There's the, the fewest number of Germans is over here. So, yeah, how does he find time to do that? After the Spanish Civil War, in the Spanish Civil War, he's, he's wearing a number of hats. He's, he's, he's a writer. He's a, he's, a, he's a novelist. He's a reporter. He's a humanitarian. He's a little bit of a diplomat. And then he writes, For Whom the Bell Tolls, and then basically for the whole up until across the river and into the trees at the end of the 40s, he writes almost nothing. So um, that's, he, he, he devotes a big chunk of his life to these secret adventures. He, he refers to himself at one point as a secret agent of my government. The argument in my book is that Ernest spends almost as much time for long stretches as a political agent or intriguer or spy, whatever, whatever you want to call it, as he does as a, as a writer and a novelist. I, in my humble opinion, that's one of the contributions of my book is to say, hey, Ernest, Ernest wasn't doing this stuff because he was gathering information or, or experience for the next book. Yes, that was part of it, but that wasn't the motivation. He, he believed in what he was doing. And so he dedicated, it was an exclusive for, for a period of three or four years, basically. For me, what's most fascinating about Hemingway's story is that it seemed to fall, it seemed to fall in line with his own ideologies at any one specific moment in time. He didn't seem, he didn't seem very fixed in his ways. Am I, is that a fair assumption on my part? Hemingway's to the extent that we can say Ernest had an ideology, it was anti-fascism. And that's that, you know, if you, if you were a political scientist and you wanted to isolate the various beliefs that characterize an anti-fascist, you would find a lot of them in Ernest. Apart from that, there's a loosely defined, he's left-leaning and has a predisposition for leftist causes is that really an ideology it's just it's kind of like it, it comes it comes with the anti-fascism but it that's a it's a lot looser thing it's the anti-fascism you can you can point to it's strong it's a it's a it's a current the sympathy for the left wing is he's kind of like rick defined. in casablanca yeah <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> in this notion that 
Ernest Hemingway was an incredibly secretive man. And yet, every time I read one of his books, I feel like I know him intimately. Was that just a... Was that just incredible skill in his ability as a writer, or was he truly sharing a bit of himself? Well, that's a good question. It's a, it's a, so the incredible skill as a writer, for sure. He was an enormously disciplined man when he set his mind to something, and, and oftentimes, I mean, we remember the colorful things. We remember the time he got drunk and, and you know, smashed the car against a tree or, or had a fight with uh, his third wife. Or, but sometimes we don't remember how disciplined he was and that, that you know, he, he'd be the first person up in the house and he would work six or seven hours uh, and he wouldn't touch alcohol till after he had done a lot of work. So, yes, incredibly skilled writer. How much of himself is he sharing? Ah, I think it's, you know, he shares little tiny bits. And I'm, so I'm, I'm leery of, of going into his novels and picking out, you know, picking out parts and saying, hey, this, I, I, I do it on a, a very limited basis and for whom the bell tolls and cross the river and into the trees where I see something that sounds just like something that I read in my one of my favorite kinds of sources, which is a letter, uh, and Ernest is a wonderful letter writer. So then I'll do it, and I think he's sharing a little bit of himself. But, but long story short, I think mostly it's his skill as a writer, and and his his. So, so the, why do we why do we still all like Ernest? Because he's so many things to so many people. It's a it, it is the sense that that he's talking to us or conveying a feeling that so many of us readers have had or, or want to have. And he also, he's also so good at putting us in the picture. You know, if you, if you read, um, so one of my favorites is Farewell to Arms. And my, I've never been to a retreat. I wasn't in World War I. <laughs> you know, I've, 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 I've never been uh, shot at and, and court-martialed, and I never dove into the river to escape my, my captors. Um, but my Lord, I mean, we feel... We feel that scene as if we're there. His power as a writer, that's, that's when I feel so, so humble. As, you know, my, my ability as a writer, I'm going, how can I get the reader into the picture? And uh, Ernest, Ernest succeeds, I think, time and again at that. So, Nicholas, I've got one last question for you, and I think it's probably the biggest question I have for you, which is, after that discovery, after that elbow to the gut, has it in any way changed the way you see his writing or his books? That's a that's another great question. Um, so, I read something interesting in the in a in a a, a book review over the weekend. Uh, it's about a, a Joyce Carol Oates book that just came out and and deals with American politics today and the the, the difference between the right and the left and and the, the experiences of the people who make up. She is so incredibly prolific. I can't believe she has a book out on that already. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> but so so she, her sympathies lie left of center. But the strength of the book is that as a writer and somebody who wants to convey the human condition, she has According to the reviewer, I haven't read the book yet, but the reviewer says uh, she dedicated herself to telling us 
both sides of the story and and not you know not like Ayn rand who 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 would have you you know the the characters are stick figures but in who had in, a very clear ideology case, yeah yeah who's driven, driven yeah we don't question where her sympathies lay and, and and it's clear from the book but in 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 an accomplished writer's books maybe it isn't that clear long story short I'm saying my my respect for Ernest the writer is intact, and maybe even greater. I, I have I have all the pleasure and and uh, respect and emotion that I've that I've always had for him. So so the the book in that sense the book worked for me, right? Well, writing the book worked for me. I felt that elbow in the gut. This whole experience has enabled me to process that. Um, you know, to do it in such a way that I could retain my my respect, and yeah, I'll use the word love for for Ernest. If I if I could answer in a slightly different way, so I'll give you a double barrel answer. I was asked in an interview, so so what do you what do you think of Ernest now? Uh, my answer was, you know, at this point, I feel like Ernest is a member of the family, and a member of the family who does certain things every so often does things that you you can't accept and you don't like, uh, but he's still a member of the family. So, you know, I kind of I kind of feel like I've got a picture of his typewriter on the wall, got a picture of him with a beard below that. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen that book jacket, but I, I have a beard myself. So uh, is Ernest still a member of the family? You bet. Fantastic. Nicholas, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you, Uma. Nicholas Reynolds has a brand new book out. It's called Writer, Sailor, Soldier, Spy, Ernest Hemingway's Secret Adventures, and it's available now at all good bookstores. This is Bookmark on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.